Everyone speaks of photography as an art, but its true value is as a business. If it's not making you money, you're wasting your time. Welcome to the RGGEDU podcast, where Rob and Gary talk and drink and fornicate with your favorite photographers. This podcast is brought to you by Sakonic, where being a professional means being consistent with your exposure, no matter the situation. Sakonic light meters not only help photographers and filmmakers get it right in camera, they help them create a consistent style and save hours of post-production time. Head to Sakonic.com to learn more about their collection of time-saving tools and to see how they can help you become the professional you're meant to be. In this episode, we sit down with futurist, director, producer, writer, educator. Man of many hats. Man of many mystery. hats. Man of all, mystery. Mystery and all the hats. Maxime Giago. The, <laughs> and he also has the coolest name, I think, of this whole season. <laughs> and it, it sounds better when he pronounces it. You right. pronounce it. Uh, Maxim Jago. Maxim Jago. Maxim Jago. Yeah, it's, it's the accent. The, it's the British accent yeah, that gets you better. every time. Everything sounds better with a British accent. I know. Well, I, I mean, I, bleeding to death sounds better with a British accent. <laughs> Please help me. I've lost a leg. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, you get it. <laughs> so I always, I always have this dream of playing James Bond, right? Yeah. And I've dream. met a, a few people over the years that have said, just out of the blue, you know, you'd make a good Bond. And I, I buy them another drink. <laughs> and, and thank them. Nothing ever comes of it. Right. So now, um, you know, I, every now and then I think I'll introduce myself as, you know, Bond, James Bond. Right. But we've, we've actually got a, a nine-page short film script that we're planning on shooting where I'll play Bond. Yeah. And it's a, it's a perfect little James Bond mission. And uh, I registered, <laughs> so I registered jamesbond0013.com right on. To, to be the title of the film. And then I told a good friend of mine who... Uh, who uh, she, Serena Catania, she's incredible. You should interview her if you can. She's based in LA. She co-founded Sundance and a million other things. Oh, wow, cool. And I said, I'm a little bit worried I might get sued because, you know, James Bond and everything. She said, Maxim, you do realize I worked on four Bond films, right? No, no, I didn't. And she said, I was the person that would have sued you and I would definitely have sued you. (laughs) So so you, she said, whatever you do, put nothing on that website. You won't be able to afford the legal letters. Like take it down immediately. So, um, so we, uh, under pressure from friends, we renamed it Jago 0013. It's a good and, name. You know, it kind of works. Max and Jago. Anyway. It's as good as Bond, if not better. All right. So you do clearly a lot. Some. So let's, let's backtrack a little bit. How did you get your foot in the door of this industry? Wow. Um, that is, uh, that is a, an interesting question. By just doing it, I think that um, uh, the days of, of the, the barrier to entry for filmmaking used to be the cost of access to the equipment. And actually now, I would say it's more the cost of the skills. Because if you, if you want to work with someone who actually knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. they are going to be expensive, and rightly so. And the problem is that if you work with someone who does not know what they're doing, maybe they'll come for free or, you know, a cup of tea and a packet of biscuits, you end up having to do the work again, or it is, isn't very high quality. So we're at a new stage now, I think, in terms of film production, where we have to, uh, we have to find budgets so that you have those skills. Because, you know, your phone will shoot 4K. And although here we are at NAB and there's all these different cameras and I geek out over the cameras and I get very excited about it. I was talking to an Indian cinematographer uh, two nights ago uh, before he was drunk <laughs> and he was, uh, he was telling me he's developing a new chip and he's talking to Ari and, you know, all of that's exciting. But the truth is, honestly, I don't think I've seen a bad picture on any professional camera in 15 years. 
So yes, we want to always push the boundaries and do more and more amazing stuff. And I'm very into VR and, and volumetric video capture now and a little bit of AR and 360 video. And that's new technology. But in terms of just shooting stuff, always, 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 it comes down to the story and the people that you're working with. And so my way in is uh, I just started doing it. Went to a couple of film schools, uh, got some debt. I had my job at Burger King. Uh, I had a cleaning job for about an hour and a half. Uh, <laughs> I was actually very proud. Of what I was studying at one of the top film schools in Britain. And I come from, you know, very, the wrong side of the tracks. I come from, in, in spite of my accent, I, I come from, you know, poverty. And had no connections and no support, no nothing, all the way through college. I paid, I worked to pay my rent while I was studying. And uh, that experience has left me with a lot of respect for basically every human being that I meet. In fact, the, the, the chances of us existing at all in the universe are so small. This is, this is brilliant. Have you ever read Bill Bryson's Brief History of Everything? No. That's beautiful. He was saying the chances of DNA forming are so small that they're equivalent to you pouring a teaspoon of sugar into a glass of water and the grains happening to land in a perfect cube. By any mm. scientific standard, it's zero. Wow. And so here we are. Life is amazing. And I think that in many ways that, that hard work journey has helped because it's helped me to, to recognize what matters and what doesn't. And honestly, saying please and thank you matters. And so... Uh, through, I suppose, that mutual respect and working with different people, I've had the privilege of connecting with some just extraordinary professionals and some people who really know their stuff. So, you know, now um, <clears throat> as, a, as a director, I've directed a lot of short films, won a couple of awards. I've, I'm now working towards my first feature and I've got a, I've got a BAFTA winning line producer. I've got the editor of Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, nice. And Coates has offered to cut the film. I've got a guy with seven Emmy Awards for sound design who's going to do the mix because the audio is you know, critical. Um, and all of that is just by, frankly, by saying please and thank you properly. Yeah, that seems to be a common thing. Uh, we keep talking to people, and one of the things that keeps coming up is don't be an asshole in this business. I mean, it's really amazing that it, it does boil down to being um, gracious and courteous and uh, thankful for the position that you have, no matter where it is in, in the line. I think so. And, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I'm going to be speaking at the Cannes Festival. I spoke at Sundance. Um, I spoke at Berlinal, which, by the way, Berlin Film Festival is great. I mean, Sundance is phenomenal. But you go to some of these festivals and there's all this kind of elitism. And I, I read somewhere that the, the most attractive part of you, the most magnetic, um, attractive part of your being is your humanity. It's not how cool your clothes are or the way you walk who you know or anything like that, or even what you've done. It's the, the human condition that we share universally is what we connect on, really. So I give talks, I do a lot of mentoring for uh, film students and graduates, you know, that kind of thing. And I have a whole talk that I give on networking. And one of the things that uh, students worry about is, why would anybody want to speak to me? I'm, you know, I'm a student, I can't help them. And I'm always saying, no, you... You are the one that can share a moment. You're the one who can say, did you know there's another bar around the corner that's not as busy? You're the one that can say, have you seen this view? Or share a perspective or a new joke, you know, or a Chuck Norris joke. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have a friend of mine, James Biddle. He's a fantastic uh, film professor at uh, Athens, Georgia. And he's uh, very hot on this stuff. He has a checklist of things that he says students should take with him, with them. And, you know... Uh, 
I think I've got this right. Smoking is a terrible thing. Don't smoke. It's awful. It kills you. It makes you smell, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people in our industry smoke. Mm -hmm. So one of the things he suggests is do not smoke. It's terrible. But carry a cigarette lighter. Because when you're at festivals, the level, the, the thing that levels the playing field is that these CEOs of Disney or whatever, they are going to probably go for a smoke at some point during the night. And if you happen to be the one with the lighter, suddenly you're having a conversation. conversation. Yeah. But where people go wrong is when they meet people, they try to get something from them. And uh, it's totally the wrong way around. If anything, you should try to give something to them and make that human connection the human connection is what gets you the gigs, not impressing people. Who who wants to know someone they're impressed by? It's it's kind of boring. So, <laughs> Lisa, what are you going to say? You know, right. you're awesome. Uh, goodbye. Right, starstruck. Yeah. <laughs> right, it's nothing. But if you make a genuine human connection with someone that you want to spend time with, because you know, particularly filmmaking, you know, photography is often a single person working, maybe a small team if you're in a studio. Uh, filmmaking, you could have a crew of 100 to 150 people and you're going to be working 10 to 12 hour days standard and it's going to be raining. It's going to be, you're going to be exhausted because, you know, when the crew go home, the, the heads of department all go and spend hours watching what you shot that day and planning the next day. You're Make getting sure it's good, yeah. so little sleep. So in all of that, you need to work with people that make you feel joy. And you have this, uh, this great question in, you know, in life, you know, why are we here? And it's a very difficult question to answer in a kind of grand scale. But if there's any measure of the things that you do that are in the right direction, the things that you do that are going to, that are probably why you're here, you personally, it's probably the things that make you feel more alive. We all have those experiences of feeling a bit dead inside. You know, I used to, I worked in a call center for a couple of years, which is a kind of suffering everyone should have. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that when you call a call center, I'm so sweet to people in call centers now. I'm yeah, like, hey, yeah. It's not right. your fault. It's okay. Right. Here's the facts. I used to train people to do technical support for um, uh, Microsoft and 3Com. So I developed my George Clooney doctor's voice, you know. Nice. People would say, my computer's trying to kill me, you know, and I would say, don't you worry about it. <laughs> I'm going to fix your computer. It's my problem now. Nice, yeah. nice, yeah. nice. Bedside manner. I had uh, one lady wanted to introduce me to her daughter. I think I had one proposition. So, um, you know, you you have to. Basically, what I'm saying is that when you're in a job like that, it kills you inside, and you know it. You feel it, and you know that that's what's happening. When you are doing things that make you feel alive, that activate you, that that you could go without sleep for happily. If there is a reason why you're here, which of course there may not be, we might be just a bunch of rock floating through space, mechanistic universe, four laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> um, but I think there's a fifth. Actually, I have a string theory science. physicist friend, and I was telling him my theory for a fifth law of thermodynamics. And he said, no, 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 no. And then half an hour later, he said, oh my God, I think you could be right. Really? Nailed it. Nice. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a physicist, don't know what I'm talking about. But... <laughs> If you, you are a futurist, though. I am a futurist, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but not a futurologist. We, just get, we have to get to that. Yeah, we will get to that. Yeah. So when you, when you do things that make you feel alive, the stuff that will make you throw the covers off the bed in the morning, whether you know if there's a reason or not why you're here, that has to be the weather vane. That has to be the guide. And the same goes for the people that you know. There are some people you know that when you're in their company make you feel inauthentic. They make you feel not like yourself. Don't spend time with those people. And there are some people that you spend time with that it's like, it's like being in a pool of clear water. You feel like you are 
uplifted and alive and present. I'm having you. one of those moments right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. That's great. So uh, it's that's, very inspirational. Yeah, you yeah. should make inspirational tapes. Just, oh man, yeah, just, just back, breathe. Have a cup of tea. Have, just gonna breathe through have some it green all. tea. <laughs> Maybe I could do that. I have had a couple of friends ask me to just read computer manuals to them, and they can take a recording <laughs> and click on the file menu. So um, <laughs> it'll put them to sleep. But but this is the thing that you know those sensations are real. You pretend you don't know because the people that make you feel inauthentic are so cool. They say all the right things. But one of the things I've noticed is if you go to something like a film festival and everybody has some kind of agenda, and at the moment I'm raising finance for four feature films. So my agenda is simple. You know, I have four projects that I think are rock star, amazing films. Everybody involved thinks they are. We've got people working for free. Everyone's committed. I'm going to have that agenda. And you're there to meet people that might participate and join in. But what I've discovered is the least authentic people are the ones that say the best stuff. So they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce you to a, you know, a billionaire from Dubai. And uh, just stick around with me and I'll tell you about the process and how we're going to do it. And before you know it, the whole evening's gone speaking to this person that made you not feel alive. Because intellectually, you're thinking... Oh, I, you know, I should like this person because they're saying all the right stuff. What's actually happening, I've tested this out, and this is absolutely true, is they're, pre they're preventing you from meeting the people you should have met who didn't say the right stuff, but were genuine and authentic, and later were going to reveal, oh, yeah, I, you know, I'm a billionaire, and I, I'd love to invest in your project. And I tested this out at the Cannes Film Festival last year. I go every year. My girlfriend and I went, and we decided that as soon as we met someone that we didn't feel ourselves with, that we didn't feel comfortable with, we would politely say, have a great night, see you later. And the consequence was we felt more alive, we felt better, but then we bumped into people that we felt great with, who were very unassuming, no fancy schmancy VIP nonsense, and then further into the, had a wonderful time with them, and then further into the evening discovered they were super legit people who really knew their stuff and that's my guide now do you think it's because if you're meeting people that are effectively disingenuous you're kind of giving up control to them you're now relying on them you're you're putting it the onus on them to introduce you to the right people and you're no longer engaging i just you're think giving up the engagement and going with the ride i i think that it, it's something like that but i think ultimately it's just that they weren't honest from the start yeah they were being dishonest from the very beginning and you feel it. You feel it. You absolutely feel it. I, I made a decision years ago to never lie again. I believe in white lies, you know. So, <laughs> okay. That's, my... <laughs> that's an oxymoron. You're never going to lie again, but you believe in but, but white, white lies. lies. And, right. So here's the distinction. If my, if my girlfriend puts on a pair of jeans and says, how do I look? You look great. Absolutely. And I hope she doesn't uh, listen to this. Fabulous. She probably will. But, but then the truth is, she always looks great, right? Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> see where I did that. Oh, yeah. so, um, but I read a book on body language. You know, I'm a director. I want to understand how people work on it. It's my job, right? right? And in this book, it said, unless you're a psychopath, because about one in a thousand people actually have that, that emotional disconnection of psychopathy. I mean, we use it in the movies. It's about that's more than I would other. want. It's terrifying. That one yeah. in a thousand. And it's something yeah, that's like a lot. Something yeah. like eighty percent of CEOs are psychopathic. Seriously, clinically psychopathic. Yeah, 
It's insane. Well, so like clearly our president is a psychopath, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm not part of the American system, and I don't have to. <laughs> well, you've oh, had wow. your own problems over there. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, the day after the Brexit vote, the number one Google search in Britain was, what is the EU? But let's not get yeah, into yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, then maybe as a futurist, I, I, have a, I have a solution to the voting problem that I think is awesome. Okay, Actually, so let's share with what you. is a futurist? Let's, let's back up, because our, our, I know our audience is going... I don't get it. Like what? what? It, okay. Define who the hell you are. Right. What is a futurist? Okay. So I have three jobs. Okay. Well, I have about 15, but I have three roles. Okay. One is uh, I write the official book on Adobe Premiere Pro. I uh, have done for a few years. I've recorded 1,800 tutorials on post-production in one form or another. I'm a master trainer for Adobe for Premiere Pro. I'm a certified instructor for Avid. I just recorded the official uh, video training for Avid Media Composer for the 101 and 110 courses. I created the entire training program for uh, EDIUS, which is very popular in news, master trainer, or grandmaster trainer for that. I created a teaching system, which is based on the neurology of learning and uh, social theory and conflict management, neurolinguistic programming, that kind of stuff. And I embed that in the training materials that I create. So I'm a media technology trainer, and I teach a lot of media technology stuff, and I speak at a lot of conferences about that stuff. So that's one of my jobs. Mm -hmm. Second job is I'm a film director. So I've worked on about 60 projects, directed 30 or 40 of those. Uh, small, independent, I'm an indie guy. Never worked in TV, always just wanted to make feature films and working my way towards that. Won a couple of awards. Uh, won an award as a screenwriter for a feature film project. That's the one that Anne Coates is offering to edit. A, uh, it's mm -hmm. a beautiful, beautiful, transcendent film about a, an uncommonly compassionate contract killer who falls truly madly deeply in love and has to become a better man. And it's a film about purpose, and we're working on that. Um, anyway, I'll get into the filmmaking because uh, the, the sequel's a game we're going to release the same day as, oh, the, cool. uh, as the film. So you go to the cinema, see the film, and go home and play the sequel, which is set a year and a day later. That's a good idea. And we're taking all the material, all of the content from the film, and putting it in the game so that you cross the fourth wall and step into the world of the film that you just saw at the cinema. So we're, we're developing that now. It's a $12 million project just in case any wealthy investors are <laughs> How much do you still need? $12 million. <laughs> so would you rather have 12 $1 million investors or one $12 million? It doesn't matter. I would love to have $12 million. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I've, been, I've been learning a great deal about film investment. I, I can give talks on it now. It, the, the studio system is what we hear about the most, uh, but it's quite an unreal system because basically they have a vertical monopoly and they have control over the entire process. But if you're not in the studio system, Ultimately, investing in films is no different to investing in a new kind of teapot or a car or anything else. Your investors need to know dollar down how many cents back in how much time and how can you convince me that those numbers are real. And it turns out for an independent film, that's extremely difficult to do. Because for most independent films, you can't get sales estimates until you've made it. If you have a famous name attached, you can get some numbers from the famous name. And that's why independent filmmakers are always fighting to get what's called an expression of interest or a letter of interest from some name. And, and the rule is it needs to be somebody that you would recognize without Googling them on both sides of the Atlantic. That's the magic wow. measure. And uh, a friend of mine, Richard Lee, is a great director in uh, L.A. He, he told me that measure, and it's absolutely right. He works on really high-end uh, commercials. So as an independent, getting that expression of interest is hard because you can't get the script. I have an award-winning script that people have loved so much. I've had people say, I will pay my own expenses and come for free if you let me work on this film. I've had uh, actresses tell me 
the project it passes the Bechtel test, you know, so it's a genuine mm-hmm. female character with her own world. She has the same emotional arc as the male lead. And I've had actresses tell me, you must have been a woman in a past life uh, to have written <laughs> this character, to have totally nailed it. But what's interesting is, as a storyteller, you know, um, I have, um, I always get the name wrong. A friend told me, corrected me, I had this wrong. Not eidetic memory. I have, um, it's sometimes called like eidetic imagination. So I can visualize with complete reality tone, which is very useful as a, as a director because you can plan it out and watch it in your mind. Um, but you have this idea of a story that is perfect. And somehow you have to translate that to the page for people who are not filmmakers and not actors and not storytellers to be inspired by. So I write readers' versions of film scripts, which have a lot more descriptive information in them, so that someone who's used to maybe reading novels can at least get a sense of the feeling and the atmosphere of the film. And then when we go into pre-production, we strip all that stuff out because it's just irrelevant to the production. So um, what we're finding now is just getting the script into the hands of the, of the actors is very, very difficult because the agents naturally want them to work on 50, 100 million, 150 million dollar films. Sure, it's all commission based for them. Right, of yeah. course. And they don't want their client to be wasting time no. on something that in all likelihood will never even get finished because it's an indie film with, you know, first time filmmaker amateurs. So they're resistant to that. And so when you hear about these new filmmakers who've got some famous person in their film, I love the interviews with them where people say, so, wow, you know, how did you get, I don't know, Scarlett Johansson to be in your film? And they say, well, you know, we sent her the script and she loved it. They're lying. <laughs> that is, that, that's that's a not straight a straight up lie. It's that just is, a straight well, up lie. Well, no, it's, it's true, but it's an inferred, it's an implied lie because okay. it's a, it's a, effectively it's a lie because they didn't just send the script to Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson's address isn't in the phone book. Right. Their agent isn't going to read it. What happened is in all likelihood, somebody they knew or someone they were related to handed the script to Scarlett Johansson and Bless them. You know, that may be, it may be a phenomenal script and an amazing project that deserves to be made. And she read it and loved it. There was a classic story with uh, King's Speech. Have you seen King's Speech? No. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. I have, of course. So good. So good. Now, I forget which actress it was. They they were saying in an interview that they they desperately wanted this particular actress for the film. And these are established filmmakers. And the agent wouldn't look at it and uh, wouldn't get the script to, to the actress. And so they basically, I think they said they bribed a security guard and got the script in her trailer at a film shoot. And uh, she found the script, read it, loved it because it's a fantastic script and got in touch with her agent and said, why on earth haven't you told me about this project and worked on the film? So the thing is, though, there are a lot of great projects. There are a lot of great films out there. And the question is whether it's worth it for everybody involved. So anyway, that's the film thing. It sounds like it sounds like agents are really inhibiting the process. Absolutely, but you, you've got to understand why they're doing that. You know, for you, their own commission. Well, you know, for their for the good of their client and for their commission. That's their job. Yeah. And so I went through a period of feeling really resentful about that and feeling like, you know, I'm a worthy filmmaker. You know, I'm, I'm going to change the world. I'm doing <laughs> and, stuff that's great. People like me. <laughs> you, know, you know, I have friends. You know, I'm trying to remember that Blackadder line. Have you ever seen the TV series Blackadder? No. no. Oh, there's, there's, there's a, it's a very funny classic British comedy. If you want to understand British humor, yeah. and there's this father's trying to persuade his daughter to go into prostitution. And she says, no. <laughs> she says, no, my nose is pretty. I'm not going to go into prostitution. <laughs> It's very funny if you're British. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it, was good. it was funny. It was a funny episode. So, um, 
you know, yes, I believe that my project is worthy. And obviously I believe that, that I'm worth working with. And I, you know, when I make films, the people that work with me say they want to work with me again. You know, I get invited back to parties. So hopefully I'm okay to work with as a filmmaker. But they don't know that. And it's a big risk. It's a bit like a stranger coming up in the street and saying, would you mind lending me $20? I promise to give you $25 back next week. You, no. So, so I understand why. But I think that there's this mythology in the film industry that if you have a great project, it'll be discovered and it'll happen. And I think the truth is that if you have great relationships with people and a great project, there's a chance that it might happen. But as a, as a wealthy friend of mine says, there's no whining on the yacht. I live in a society where I turn the tap on and drinking water comes out. And I turn a switch and lights come on 24-7. Mm-hmm. And I'm very unlikely to be shot or stabbed when I walk down the street. Right. And yay for that. And in that incredible situation where I get paid to pretend I know what I'm talking about. with you know, I've been a cleaner. I've worked in a gas station. I've, you know, I've done all of these jobs. For me to be in a position where I'm okay, thank you, by speaking about things, I think it's a bit much to whine that no one will give me millions of dollars to make a cool feature film. Right. And so I try to be pragmatic about it, but I also try to forgive myself for where I started. You know, um, the uh, when you really look at the people that you think you're in competition with, you're not. You're coming from a, you. Everybody is walking a unique path. Everyone is taking their own journey. And the people that seem to be more successful than you didn't do the other things you did and uh, didn't have the other successes that you had. And they probably had an advantage in that particular area that they're successful in. Years ago, I was at a a, a little conference in London. Um, There's about 200 people in the room and Rebecca O'Brien, a producer, um, was, was speaking. And she said, okay, out of 200 people, hands up who has made it into the film industry uh, without being related to someone who got them a job or having their parents pay all their living costs so they don't have to pay rent and they can work for free. Not a single person put their hand up. And then she said, hands up who's ever met anyone that has done that. And one person put their hand up and said they'd met one person ever that had done that. Wow. Crazy. So let's just be realistic about our own expectations of ourselves. Now, the the amazing thing is that's the the feature film industry, right? Mm -hmm. We're now in this whole new distribution paradigm. One of my hats is uh, I'm chief innovation officer for a fantastic film distribution company called FilmDo, F-I-L-M-D-O-O, FilmDo.com. And we have six or 700 features. We're moving into shorts now. And uh, we're, we're all about quality film, regardless of where it came from. And... You can now put a film online and you can put it on Vimeo. They do a 90-10 deal for investors. You can pay an aggregator not that much money in the scheme of things to get it onto iTunes. There are all these outlets, uh, YouTube Red. You can put your content, Amazon Prime, they're taking Mm -hmm. uh, user-delivered content now. So you can put your content out there. The distribution medium itself is now universal. And so... Really, we come back to a more fundamental demand for any form of distribution, which is that it's not really about the logistics of distribution anymore. It's about marketing. So I've written a few books. I can tell you that the the biggest part of the work associated with a book is marketing the book. And so it is with film. So we're starting to see Vine stars becoming YouTube stars. 
who are releasing content. And I can tell you the, the, the perfect combination of settings for YouTube videos to increase your audience. Uh, you know, if you build up your audience by providing consistent content regularly with short films and lots of metadata, you can make a career that is what a, a friend of mine um, refers to as uh, sustainable filmmaking. Sustainable filmmaking is where you earn enough money to make the next one and pay the rent. So that instead of working in an office or a call center or a cleaner at the local hospital, you are working producing media. Mm -hmm. And I think with the, the watering down of distribution, it's a problem for the classic studio system because where do you put the media? You have to put it everywhere. And I can tell you from working at FilmDo, the deals we have to do, you know, sales agents are just sick of it because there are so many different contracts they have to sign. And every single contract, they have to pay a lawyer to read it. And we don't have enough standardization of that. But now you can put your stuff on YouTube. You can put it on, on iTunes. iTunes charges 30%. You get 70%. Just think about this for a second. If you sold something in a shop as a DVD, they take 50 right away. Mm -hmm. If you go through a sales agent to a distributor, to a cinema. Yeah, you're chunking away at it. The net money yeah. you get back is far from 70%. And the key difference is this. The key turning point is this. I read an article by a guy who was saying that he usually watches films on his laptop and he got a 50-inch TV and he started watching films on his TV. But because of the viewing distance, the size of the image was about the same. Now, actually, it's a bit more relaxing for your eyes because your eyes have to work when you're focusing at short distance. Right. What was, what was important for me about that article, and this was a few years ago now, is that he did not think it was noteworthy that he watched films on his laptop. He didn't say, you know, hey, I'm super hip and novel and cool and teched up, and right. I, I watch stuff on my laptop. He just said, isn't it interesting that my TV looks the same as the, the distribution medium that, of course, we all know? And the point at which something is that consumer level is the point at which I think it gets really interesting. Because now you've got something you can work with that a lot of people are connecting with. Now we have a problem with VR at the moment because it's ridiculously amazing in every imaginable way. But there just aren't that many VR headsets yet. And there's not enough standardization of the technology for it to be a ubiquitous, you know, stick it on YouTube and it's going to work or Vimeo. And, but we're working towards that. And we've already, for example, you know, with 360 video, it turns out that if you use equirectangular video, which everybody is, you, it's like turning a globe into a flat image. Equirectangular That's video. That's the word. Yeah. And I'm day four of NAB and what? I'm saying that word. <laughs> I still want to know what a futurist means, but now I want to know I'm, what... I'll, I'll come to that. <laughs> what, did, what did you say? I can't even... Imagine, imagine an atlas. Yeah. It's flat. Yes. But what it's representing is a sphere. It's representing a globe. Right. So... Well, you lost your power. Uh, we're representing a, a, a globe. The way it does that is it creates an equirectangular representation of a sphere. It flattens out the sphere. Right. So imagine cutting a seam down and, and just spreading it out. Right. So equirectangular video takes what would be a spherical, completely stitched, surround 360-degree video and flattens, flattens it, out it out just like an atlas. The thing is, though, that equirectangular video is now a 4K, usually, a 4K flat piece of video. We already have 4K distribution. So all you have to do is rewrap the video, which the player does, and you can now upload video to YouTube with a little metadata tag that says, I'm VR video. It's a slight misnomer, actually, but you need a VR headset to look at 360 video, but it's technically 360 video. True VR is an environment that you can walk around. 
in the space and look at from any angle. 360 video, you can turn your head in any direction, but you can't move around the space. Now, when you're capturing events live, the capture system uh, where you're capturing a 3D model of what's happening is called volumetric video. So it's video that has volume. And there's a couple of versions of that. One, um, um, I think it was a Facebook just announced a new camera. Uh, you can lean. Yep. So you're sitting on the sofa and you can lean in one direction or another to change your viewpoint because the camera's constructing different camera angles, but it's limited movement. And it's incredibly immersive. But true VR, volumetric capture in true 3D is, uh, I, I don't know what to call it. That would be VR video. So we're planning a project now called uh, Jolly's Garden, J-O-L-I. Jolly is the French for pretty. It's about a young lady who's 18, and she's lived in an underground garden all her life. She's never known anything else. So think of Play Plato's Allegory of the Cave, mm -hmm. if you're familiar with it. She doesn't know, because it's all she's experienced, that it's uh, artificial. The grass is made of plastic. The flowers are made of cloth. The sun is an infrared heater with a pull cord switch that you can turn off and on. And there's the sound <laughs> of birdsong coming from speakers in the ceiling and bees coming from speakers in the flowers, which are made of metal and cloth. And it's very, very beautiful, but all very artificial. And she has no idea that she's blind because no one's ever told her that people can see. So she's in this environment and it's a six wall set. The entire film takes place in the garden. And her father who built the garden for her, her parents visit her. She's much loved, but very bored. And at the beginning of the film, a young man stumbles upon the garden. He's not meant to be there. And he becomes a prisoner too. And he tries to escape with her. And the story is about what happens. So it's a psychological thriller. So there's the amazing premise, right? Right. This is a phenomenal premise. It was written as a, a stage play by my father in the 70s. And he died about 10 years ago while he was working on the screenplay adaptation for me. And I inherited his literary rights and I finished the adaptation. So it's actually a kind of immersive theater. So we're going to shoot six wall set, right? It's a complete immersive environment. The lighting rig is part of the story. So we need to see everything. We're going to shoot 2K, 16-bit, 4K RAW, which is great quality. Then we're going to put that camera away, and we're going to shoot 360 video for VR headsets. Or what we really want to do is 3D model the garden so that it's an environment you can walk around in with a VR headset. And volumetric capture, volumetric video capture, the performances of the actors, so that you are in the garden with the actors and you can stand wherever you like, and the sound in true VR is spatially located. X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, I should say. No, X, Y, Z, we're in America. You, <laughs> all right, so two days ago, we were in a podcast, and I asked, are we going to get to the point where you can walk around a movie? We're going to go further than that. Are you ready for this? Yes. So let's get into the future. Yes. Okay. Uh, as a futurist, my job is to consult for companies and help them with planning for what's coming. And I have a pretty good hit rate so far with what and when. So we can look at three years, five years, 10, 15, 30, 50, 100. 100 years we can't really plan for because some of the so-called exponential technologies are so significant. Uh, one of the key ones is this. We're not that far from computers designing computers. And they think that we get three generations of computers writing code, computers being programmers. We get three generations before it's impossible for us to follow what they're doing. In three generations, we actually don't understand anymore and cannot understand. And when that happens, the whole, I mean, you've seen the science curve, right? We're, oh, yeah. we're at yeah. the base of the steep bit now, and it's crazy. So 
you know, my job is to look at where things are going in terms of artificial intelligence, uh, fusion energy generation, uh, uh, socioeconomic development, novel materials, all of that stuff. But obviously I have a background in media. So here's where we're going with film. We are about two and a half to three and a half years from so-called natural language interaction with computers. What this means is, instead of saying, hey Siri, what's the weather like? You'll say, what's the weather like? While turning your head towards wherever you perceive Siri to be. And Siri will know that you're talking to her. And she'll either say, you know, it's 20 degrees, no, 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 whatever. Or she'll say, do you want it here? Or do you want a five-day one? And she'll mimic your lexicon and your speech patterns. You'll be having a dialogue with your computer. And people are going to say, everyone's talking about self-driving cars, which are ridiculously important and amazing. It's just the consequences of self-driving cars are not enough in the public eye because it's not just about being able to commute to work while you have a nap. Think about ER rooms and the amount of the amount of work that surgeons deal with, which is caused by car accidents. Think about it being national news that a car crashed. Think about uh, the same. I mean, it's, it just goes on and on. Wait, I want to drive my car. I don't want to give that. Here's up. the great thing. <laughs> well, you've probably got. I would say you've, depending on you know, in America is, is slow with this stuff. You've probably got ten to fifteen years. But within about 15 years, the government will start saying, I'm sorry, but for health and safety reasons, we can't justify allowing human drivers. But there's a sweet spot. Are, right? you, are you okay with that? Oh, absolutely. But there's a sweet spot because they'll drive faster and better. But here's the sweet spot. The people who really suck at driving will be very happy to move to self-driving cars. <laughs> yeah. Which means for a, a few years, you will be able to drive but the people that suck at driving won't. Nice. So you're going to have almost no traffic. Basically, there'll be no traffic because it's a, it's a coherent network system, right? So when enough cars are self-driving, they just, you won't, I mean, you don't even need traffic. That's cars. when I'm moving to LA, when there's no traffic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been in LA a lot lately and I, I feel your pain. Mm. But here's the thing. Self-driving cars are amazing. Cannot wait. It's going to be so, so good. Uh, think about old people who can't get out. Just think about that. People who are stuck at home where they have to ask a friend to drive them somewhere or maybe a minibus comes or whatever, they can just tell, speak to their phone or their computer and say, I'd like to go and play bingo. Do you have bingo here? You know, I want to go, yeah. I want to go to the beach and a car will arrive and it'll, it will call them and well, say wait, I'm outside. Who's, who's paying for that car? Because one of the things right now, you know, it's access. It's having money to have a car. Yeah, but it gets so much. Well, this is the thing is that most people won't own a car. Car ownership's going to, really fall through the floor. Okay, so don't start investing in cl classic cars is what you're saying. <laughs> well, Jay, Jay Leno is hosed. <laughs> Jay Leno, yeah, he just went bankrupt, buddy. It'll be Sorry. like a theme park. You know, you'll go to a place to drive at all. I mean, imagine in 50 years, not even 50 years, kids are going to be saying, wait, so, so what? There was a wheel in the car that you, like, how does that work? What did you do with that thing to make the car steer? You know, you had to push a pedal with your foot. So, um, which by the way, we don't need to do anymore, but the, <laughs> anyway, so we've gone self-driving cars, right? The cost, if you look at an Uber, something like 70, 75% of an Uber journey is the driver and the rest is taken by the company. So if you don't have a driver anymore and an Uber ride is 30% of the cost of today, probably less because of the economy of scale, it means that owning a car 
is so much more expensive than just having a self-driving car take you where you need to go. Mm -hmm. So you'll still have people who own their own because they want, you know, it'd be prestigious cars and all of that. But the fact that you can interact with these technologies in a natural way, that's the big deal. I really think people are going to be saying there was the time before natural language interaction with computers. They'll probably say the time before talking to computers and the time after. Think about retouching. So it's like silent movies versus, you know, versus talkies. <laughs> it's, it's being what color are talkies. Uh, uh, just kidding. It's being colorblind. It's being, imagine if you could only see in black and white. The scale of this impact is so great, I'd say it's like, until now, you were seeing in black and white. And someone, you know, gave you eye drops, and now you can see in color. That's the shift we're going to see. It's enormous. Are we going to see it, or is it going to be our, our kids and our grandkids? Three years. Three years? Colorblind? No more than three years. Well, hold on. Hold on. In, in the lab now, we have some basic functional versions of natural language interaction with computers. Um, we're beginning to see the development of more effective deep learning uh, systems for computers, where they're mimicking uh, child learning mechanisms. It turns out that evolution was really good at working out how to do memory. Mm -hmm. So we're pretty much mimicking that now. As we are with so many other technologies, I just read today we've successfully managed to make uh, artificial photosynthesis, which is which is huge for energy generation. Uh, but and and solar is going to be bigger and bigger and bigger as we develop um, more efficient solar systems. I read I read that there's a company now that by combining new solar systems, they're getting as as efficient as thirty eight percent efficiency with solar panels, which is just crazy. Anyway, um, yeah, the the roof that Elon Musk just came out with. You know, yeah, yeah, and, uh, they're, 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 yeah. they're roughly the same cost of a you know higher end roof, but yeah, yeah, and of course you get this economy of scale. Yeah. So um, where was I? Going? So so in the lab now we've got that, and part of the problem for natural language interaction is that the system needs a deep enough database, it needs a deep enough understanding, and it turns out that the way to do that is to give it a semantic awareness in the way that we do. So you know there was a beautiful TED talk about this where a lady was saying. If you think about a child seeing a cat, as the cat walks across the room, the child gets at least about 15 distinct images of the cat. And so they were asking themselves, how many images of a cat would an AI need to be able to look at any photo with a cat lying on its back, sitting in a tree, eating some food? How many images to be able to always recognize a cat? It turns out it's about 200,000. So they fed an AI 200,000 images of cats, and now it always spots a cat. Your brain is this incredible instrument for dealing with, uh, it's a kind of a, a brain, our brains use a sort of a pattern language to interpret uh, sense data and information. And the pattern language is incredibly efficient, and we're beginning to learn how it works and to model it for computing. But it's also, it's very, very good at parallel computing. It's quite slow. It's about 300 hertz thinking is about 300 times a second but one beat is a vast amount of information and so it turns out that parallel processing is more effective than fast processing which is why nvidia for example are where it's at right now because nvidia are the masters of uh, multi-threaded multi-core gpu uh, acceleration so they're very heavily involved in ai because you need this parallel processing yeah. for it to work so in the lab we've got basic natural language interaction and within about three years, two and a half to three and a half years, you're going to begin, it's the beginning of seeing, you know, Cortana on Windows or Siri on Mac OS or 
um, uh, Facebook have M, but they're using that technology in another way. It's fascinating, but they're using it in another way. And Google DeepMind, but I, I don't think they've got a language interaction system quite the same way yet. All of these systems will go live and the vocabulary will get bigger and bigger and bigger. I would say for it to really feel like, oh, now we're seeing in color, 10 years. All right, I need a no BS answer here. When am I going to be able to grow some Fabio hair? Some what? Some Fabio luscious oh. locks of hair. <laughs> That's what I'm waiting You're for. You're both, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, tell me, tell me four years. Being British, <laughs> four years. People have started saying, "Hey, you're like Jean-Luc Picard." I just want to slap them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or because you know, I've been working out because I want to play Bond. I've been right. getting. Uh, You're uh, serious Jason. about the Bond? Oh thing. yeah, let's do yeah. it. Come on. Wait a minute. Didn't didn't your producer friend? She's been on four Bond things. Isn't she's she? Been, she's, she's out of that have world an now. End. She's in, in somewhere. Serena, Rob, you could play Money Penny. You're, you'd make oh, perfect. I'm so Money Penny. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Serena is so amazing and so selfless. She has all these filmmaker friends, and she said recently, "You know what? I'm going to get back into the industry." so that my friends can get the opportunities they deserve. And she was invited to Sundance this year to receive an award as a thank you for founding the festival and everything. And she said, nope, I'm busy making a movie. Oh, cool. Thanks, but I don't need the award. I'm kind of busy right now for actually being a creative. So uh, she's incredible. Um, but no, we, it, uh, you know, I get Jason Statham and, uh, and I get Jean-Luc yeah. Picard. Um <laughs> There's a technology today called mesotherapy where they inject vitamins into your scalp directly. And so it's a localized vitamin delivery and they uh, stimulate the skin, which produces, which triggers the production of collagen and white blood cells and that stuff, which combined apparently has a 90% success rate. And there's a company produced a sonic version where there are no needles. It just uses a uh, high frequency harmonic, I suppose, with your, uh, every, everything has a harmonic frequency, right? So, um, yeah, I may be trying that one out. Yeah. But there was a, there's a couple <laughs> just of companies. Need to harmon harmonize your scalp and then you're going to be yeah. good. You know? yeah. So listen to opera, right? But yeah. the, the, uh, there, there are a couple of companies. There's one company came up with a pill, um, but it takes five years to go through clinical trials. And, you know, it worked on mice amazingly well. Uh, but some of the most interesting, um, some of the most interesting research is in stem cell therapy. And the big problem with stem cell therapy is the, uh, the ethical issues of, um, you know, where do you get the stem cells from? And uh, historically, it would be early stage embryos, which if you are a mechanistic universe advocate is, hey, it's just, it's just molecules. But if you're spiritually minded, particularly if you're a Christian, uh, you know, and, and not even, well, you know, certain, certain, regardless of the religion, some people believe that the moment of conception is the moment that the being is alive which means doing anything to an embryo is murder. Now, whether that's right or not, people have a right to believe what they believe, not necessarily to, to force those beliefs upon other people, but they have a right to believe what they believe. And when enough people believe something, you know, this is the difference between morals and ethics, right? Ethics is about society, about groups and um, boundaries and principles. You have to honor that belief because so many people believe it. So how do you honor that belief? Well, they found a way to regress um, stem, uh, skin cells to what's called a pluripotent state, which is stem cell-like. And I just saw a video yesterday. I'm a big fan of futurism.com. You, you know, it's great. They just give you 
short, you know, one minute you get what's happened. Mm-hmm. And there's a, they found a system for getting stem cells from the patient who's got terrible burns and really, really severe third degree burns. They literally, they get a small amount of stem cells. You can get them from your nose, actually, from your olfactory uh, region. Um, but they get cells from your body, massively increase the number of stem cells that they got from your body. They have a machine that multiplies them. And then they squirt them on the burn. And within a crazy space of time, your skin is completely regenerated with That's no scar happening tissue. Now. They happening ran now. a study where the halfway through the study, they stopped it because the doctor said it was unethical not to use the technology on the control group. Because, you know, you have wow, to have a control group yeah, where you, you have a right. fake thing right. that isn't really doing anything. It right. doesn't have the difference. Why, oh why make these people suffer? Right. They said we, yeah. we can't continue yeah. to not use this technology on everybody. Just a night or two ago, I was reading about um, a quadriplegic who is regaining function in his arm mm-hmm. through stem cell, stem oh, man, cell awesome. therapy. I can't even so say So we it. found out that so we, we're reversing it. It's, ha- yeah, it's starting to happen. It's happening, yeah. you know, and it's heartbreaking for me. Um, what's his name? The real Superman. Well, um, oh, um Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. When Superman broke his back, yeah. I think the whole world has got one degree darker. You know, yeah. Superman, I mean, Christopher Reeve. And now we've discovered that uh, uh, nerve, nerve cells will reconnect. They will, they will grow, but they're not very good at reaching out. Skin will reach out, but nerves don't. So they created um, a dissolving scaffold that they put into the region that the nerve should go to, squirt in some stem cells. Obviously, you know, you can tell I'm not a medical doctor. Yeah, it's like they're using a turkey baster. To squirt in some... It's like very, very precise turkey baster. <laughs> squirt it in and the cells will grow across the scaffold and reconnect. The problem is we don't have the technology yet to track which nerve should connect to which nerve. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you know which nerve you're this connecting? I mean, you're, you're making a bridge. It turns but out you... it doesn't matter. You're, con- you're what? Your brain don't is you need so, to connect the right things? It's like your brain is so plastic. There's about a 15-day ch- uh, changeover rate for your brain. That's why if you – by the way, if you ever want a habit, you want to break a habit, you need to make the 15-day mark because our, our um, transition from one state to the other is about two weeks. And so uh, you might have heard of people trying to quit smoking. You have to make it to two weeks because the chemical addiction has gone. But it's deeper than that. Your sense of self takes two weeks to change. So if you've got a – a friend that's transgressing boundaries and you need to push the boundary back. You just need to maintain the boundary for two weeks and they will adjust and, and get used hmm. to the idea. So um, anyway, it turns out that the brain rewires itself. But in order for the brain to rewire itself, it needs feedback. So this is amazing. I see where you're going using, this, so this, is, this is amazing. They're using VR to give visual feedback to the brains of people that are rewiring themselves so that when they move their leg, so when the leg moves, because the brain's sending all sorts of signals, right. if the brain moves um, the leg, um, the VR version of the leg moves more. So if it's just like the little beginnings of a twitch of a muscle, that muscle twitch is translated into a full-blown leg movement so that the, 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 the person can learn to do that more. And then huh. as the muscle movement grows into being clearer and firmer and surer, 
they they toned down the amplification of the movement in the VR, and now they're walking. So do they need the v- today? Do they need the VR? Because I, when yeah, you were saying the that, muscle I, I twitch was, is too small. Okay, I was thinking that that you're going to say that you know as the as the nerves are being reconnected. The brain is processing that it's not the right connection and it's rewiring itself. Not quite. But it, it needs the VR, it needs that additional feedback amplified to really understand how to right. rewire itself. The brain needs, uh, they have a phantom pain solution like this as well. I'll tell you about oh, that. But they, cool. the, the brain needs some feedback mechanism. And we have this, um, what do they call it? Appropriate uh, perception, I think is the word. Like I know where my arm is even if I'm not looking at it behind right. my back. Um, that feedback mechanism is one of the wires, right? Mm-hmm. So the brain doesn't know that this thing coming in is the skin on the right side of my foot. It just knows there's some sensation coming in. So you can't use the internal mechanism as a feedback for this learning process. They actually are taking that information, amplifying it so that it's there. The, the solution for phantom pain, you, you have someone who loses a hand, for example, and they have terrible pain in that hand, but they can't mm. do anything with it because the hand doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So there's this system where they set up a mirror where it looks like you're seeing both hands, but you're actually just seeing the hand you still have. And then all you have to do is look at that for a few minutes and flex the fingers on the other hand so that your brain sees the missing hand flexing and it eases the pain. Whoa. Wow. So simple. So our brains are associative and relative learning. Yeah, that's crazy. So the the education system I created, I call it the ESP teaching system because it's um, empathy, skills, storytelling, and patterns. And it's all about using the way that our brains seek patterns um, to to create meaningful memories. But it turns out that we're so evolved. This is why I love filmmaking, right? The reason I make films is, are you familiar with... um, um, I was going to say Pavlov. It's not Pavlov's. Uh, the the pyramid. Oh, what's it called? The name's gone totally out of my head. Maslow's pyramid. No, no. So Maslow's pyramid is a pyramid of priorities. So you've got at the bottom, you've got air, then water, then food, then shelter, and so on. And you work your way up from the in order of priority. And you know, how long can you live without this? And eventually, you get to higher order needs, like the need to communicate, the need to connect, the need for love, the need to give love. Um, Culturally, we're always talking about getting people to love us. But actually, what's far more important is getting people to accept our love. And that kind of acceptance of us is so critical. You know, as a species, when we're walking around as monkeys in the forest, if you're socially excluded, you will die. And that's why it's so important to us to be accepted socially. And we need to recognize that. Anyway, uh, it turns out, and I've said this so many times in, in interviews, but just think about this filmmaker. The bit of your brain that has experiences does not differentiate between a real experience happening right now, a memory, something you imagine, or something you observe, which is why when you watch somebody climb a tree, you literally experience it with them. And when it's your turn to climb the tree, you remember this is when I need to lift my leg onto that branch. You don't think this is when they lifted their leg. Because of mirror neurons, you're experiencing with them. But the important thing is that in terms of the emotional journey, you are experiencing things you remember or imagine just the same as real experiences. There's no differentiation. So in that sense, when you make a film, you make reality itself a medium for your story. And it turns out that, uh, you know, it's experience that brings wisdom, not not age, unfortunately. So... Um, 
It turns out that as a species, we developed the written word relatively late, right, relative to the complexity of our civilizations. And it's probably because we use stories instead. So we would remember events through parables, teaching tales, that kind of stuff. And then much later than we might have, we began writing things down. And if you look at the memory systems, the really advanced memory systems, you've got the many room system placing things in space because we have great spatial memory as well. And we experience reality via the mechanism of memory. So that's why sometimes you get deja vu. But mm -hmm. uh, the way we understand information is the context of a story. So it's, um, for me, as a filmmaker, if I tell a story where the lead character is somebody that the audience can empathize with, where their humanity is on show for the audience. And it's a story that takes that person through a particular journey. I know the audience is also personally taking that story. What a privilege as a storyteller to be able to do that. And there's a book I read years ago by uh, the American author Richard Bach. Mm -hmm. He's more famous for uh, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. But the book I read when I was 11 is Illusions. And if you haven't read Illusions, please go immediately and buy it. It is a life-changing book. And um, we're talking now about maybe me directing uh, the film adaptation. Which Oh, really? Yeah. Book yeah. that changed your life, you might get to direct. That I read it when nice. I was 11. It set me off on my spiritual journey. I studied every esoteric system I could find. I became a Tai Chi teacher. Um, you name it, I studied it. And I just wanted to meet him to thank him. I just wanted to shake his hand and say thank you for writing that book. And we exchanged a few messages on his website. He found an interview with me somewhere online and said, you know, I think you, you might be the ideal person to direct the film. Wow. And the problem is, how am I going to raise $40 million to shoot this incredible life-changing book as a film? He already has a script that he wrote that is perfect. And we need, um, I was talking to Rob Legato, you know, he, he got the Oscar for the Jungle Book. Mm -hmm. And he said he might be open to... Maybe, I mean, he probably says yes to everything. <laughs> he's a lovely guy. But whether he's at the time or not, that's another question. But uh, he was saying he might be up for the VFX. The story is about um, this guy meets uh, someone who, uh, it turns out they're friends. And the guy he meets uh, was a, is a messiah who quit being a messiah because he was sick of nobody listening to him. But he is still a master of the illusion. He can walk on water, walk through walls, levitate things, materialize things, knows everything. He just can't be bothered to talk about it because no one's listening. And the story is these dialogues between these two characters about why we're here and what life is and what reality is. It is amazing. <laughs> and in, in over 20 years of studying every philosophy, every, every system I could find, I'm working on a very, very slow metaphysics PhD now on the nature of being. I'll tell you the conclusion now. It's to get on with it. That's the conclusion. <laughs> All right. Um, just save you 80,000 words of reading there. Just get <laughs> on with it. <laughs> That's it. Whatever you're doing now, get on get with on it. With it. Uh, it's probably right. Um, I've never found a better philosophy. I have never encountered a more consistent, coherent, dependable philosophy for what to do about being here. It's beautiful. Hmm. And so, but it has some visual effects, you know, it has some miraculous things happening and we need them to look completely real. And um, we've got some interested actors, but because it's, I'm, I'm at my first feature stage as a director. Right. And with the 40 million on top of the, of the 12 million, now you need 52 Two million. million. <laughs> so here's, here's the thing, going back to uh, Jolly's Garden. Yeah. I realized that we were going to have trouble getting $12 million to make Orpheus Rising. Uh, Orpheus Rising, which is uh, the, the Hitman Who Falls In Love yeah. um, with the, the script, uh, the award-winning script. I always wanted Johnny Depp for the lead. 
And I always wanted Gemma Arterton for the female lead. I think she's a much uh, underused actress. She's a phenomenal actress. What has she been in? I'm not familiar uh, with She name. was a Bond girl. She was in Byzantine, Hansel and Gretel. Uh, if you've ever seen The Disappearance of Alice it's Creed. It's Bond girl thing for you. Let's, well, be, let's, let's admit it. You know, let's admit it right now. As long as I can pick her up in Bond, Aston Martin. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> DB4, are you going to go a DB9? I don't think my girlfriend wants me to work with Gemma Arterton. But... <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, she is uh, she is a really exceptional actress that is rarely pushed as hard as as she's capable of going to. She she's really great. I saw her in a Q and A before a film in London, and as herself in the Q and A, she she just is the character I need for the film. I mean, it was just amazing. I just need her to not act and mm, speak the lines yeah. and she is Rachel the lead character from the film it is such a powerful role it's such a great role and it's one of those frustrating situations where I just need her to read the script if she would read the script I think she would be 100% in to the project and uh, but how do I get her the script now an old uh, psychologist friend of mine used to say it's not suffering that leads to creativity it's frustration it just so happens those two things are often hand in hand. So I've been experiencing a wonderful, generous helping of frustration, frustration. <laughs> with these projects. I wanted uh, Anthony Hopkins. Uh, one of my yeah. favorites. Uh, the role was written for him. He plays an old guy who turns out to be, uh, he's just, well, I don't want to ruin it, but he's, he is it, it's just a fantastic role for Anthony Hopkins, amazing role for Anthony Hopkins. And I wanted Terrence Stamp. Who uh, is, oh, again yeah. matched on these absolutely. Tone Stamp is uh, Anthony Hopkins is an old man that the lead character meets randomly in a park and becomes a good friend of his and becomes yeah. very important to him. Uh, a phenomenal role, really. Uh, probably, I think the I think Anthony Hopkins that role called Anthony. Just in case anybody was confused, <laughs> uh, is probably the single most powerful scene in the in the entire film. Uh, the, there's one particular scene that is just absolutely rock star. And then Terrence Stamp is the handler, the liaison for the guy who's a contract killer, who uh, seems to be his friend, but turns out it really isn't. And what I love about Terrence Stamp is that he, every word he says sounds like the truth. It's like mm -hmm. the gospel, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but he has this twinkle in his eye that says, I know something you don't know, I'm not going to tell it, you. It's a bit mischievous, right? Yeah. So we have these characters. So then we couldn't do it. I couldn't get the script to anybody ever under any circumstances, and I still haven't played Bond. So I did a stock take. <laughs> <laughs> I did a stock take and we, we want to shoot actually we're thinking of shooting the Bond short uh, sorry the Jago 0013 short with um, there's a new 250 degree lens you can get you can put it on a GH5 the new Panasonic GH5 you can shoot uh, 4K uh, 422 10-bit uh, in with a single lens with no stitching and it's all in camera you can get an $800 gimbal and you've got couch VR with a single lens it's amazing so um, we're thinking of shooting that Bond short that way. VR is really attractive to you. You keep coming back to VR What's attractive in, mo in to me, multiple ways. I'm attracted to the human experience. I'm attracted to the human condition. And my job as a storyteller is to, is to create a facsimile of real experience. And you can do that with beautiful cinematography. And we intend to do that with all the other films as well. But, you know, I'm a gamer. I've been a gamer since Pong. I've been... You know, for, I I have my my creds. What's your game of choice now? You know, it's really tough. I, I like first person shooters because I never have time for film for films here. See, I was going to talk about the convergence of it. Yeah. I never have time for games with a story, so I usually just like to blow stuff up. 
I've been playing Far Cry Primal, and I just want it with a VR headset, and I don't have the, the right headset for it. But uh, I'm looking forward to some future stuff. You know, uh, There's nothing that's really blowing my mind at the moment yeah. uh, in gaming. But The Last of Us. Have you played The Last of Us? No. No. Shut down these computers now. Go and buy a PlayStation and get, get The Last of Us. It won something like 100 Best of the Year Game Awards, Best Game of the Year Awards, something like 250 awards overall. It is the most ridiculously amazing game made by a company called Naughty Dog. And Naughty Dog, if you're listening, I will buy anything you make, <laughs> anything, for the rest of time. Really? They're that it good? Is, it's a post-apocalyptic zombie game. But that's just the backdrop. It's really about the relationship between your character and this young girl that you're protecting. And in spite of themselves, they develop a sort of father-daughter relationship. And you're dealing with life and emotion and feeling. And... You know, when people say I was on the edge of my seat, and that's just a figure of speech, because of course, <laughs> nobody's ever on the edge of their seat. I caught myself on the edge of my seat, yeah. just because uh, there's a scene at the end, uh, I won't ruin it for you, but please play the game. There's a scene at the end where anyone who's played the game says, yeah, I know. You know, <laughs> the scene at the end where, where, you know, bad stuff's happening to the girl, and you feel genuinely I will destroy you. <laughs> Don't you dare touch that girl. Right. You feel such personal rage that she is in danger and you you know it's a shooting game in places right you're fighting yeah. bad guys and but the emotion is so raw and real <laughs> i absolutely take my hat off to the people that made that game and they a little while ago released a trailer for the sequel and everybody who played the first game was just you know my brain is exploding <laughs> but they've, they've announced this stuff so early we've got that terrible waiting game it's like waiting for christmas in january you know yeah Anticipation. So, oh my goodness! So I'm I'm very interested in the gaming space, and you know the, the VR thing is about if you've tried if you've watched any media, 360 video with a VR headset, what makes it compelling isn't really walking around the room or anything like that. Although that is amazingly wow, you really feel present because people will walk past you. If you get a chance, uh, Star VR have the most incredible headset. They're in the North Hall at NAB here, and it's 210 degrees peripheral vision. And they have a proof of concept where you're in a, a half-built house and there are robots walking around fighting each other. And you step out of the way as they walk past. You feel the presence of this stuff. It is incredible. So for me, true VR storytelling is immersive theater. You're present with the actors. But here's where we're going. I was going to say this earlier. This is really exciting. Adobe have a technology, uh, I forget what they call it now, vocode or something like that. They can record a piece of your voice, and having analyzed your voice, they can type anything they want you to say. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> now, think about this. This is pretty scary, but here, think about this. We've already got natural motion for virtual... Well, actually, we haven't even spoken about robotics and where we're going with that, but that's perhaps for another day. It's, it's amazing. So we can now have natural movement for characters in games. We can have procedural behavior... And we can have facsimile AI, you know, responding to scenarios where the characters in the game have pre-written responses to things that you say. But when we get natural language interaction with computers, that combined with this technology from Adobe means a virtual character that never existed as a human being can have a conversation with you and they will be photorealistic. They will look like a person. Facial expressions, intonations, stresses in the voice, the whole thing. 
but the system will be generating the words they say. So I'm forecasting a new kind of storytelling where you, you put into the system the characteristics and behaviors of the characters in the story. You place in the story the events that are going to happen and you press play and you step into the room. And the, these, I can't call them AI, they won't be true AI, but these procedurally procedural behavior generating software systems will stand in front of you and say, hey, how are you doing? And you'll say anything and, and it will respond. So you're, you're forecasting this amazing experience. I'm, I'm forecasting an, another way to um, really not be able to protect your identity. Like, <laughs> I think Adobe needs to get into the identity theft business if they're going to well, keep, keep developing this kind of technology. Because where does it stop? Where does uh, it, I'm yeah, forecasting does it... a, a turkey baster because my face melted off. <laughs> I, need to, I need to grow a new one from this conversation. <laughs> so here's, you you know, need new skin. <laughs> but you're going to get new hair? Yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be good. It's going to be yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, we haven't spoken about uh, age-reversing technologies. There's a this company called Elysium have a, a product called Basis, which produce, produces uh, more NAD plus in your blood, which um, which allows senescent old cells to commit suicide, apoptosis, making room for new cells. And so um, we're beginning to see the development of technologies that don't just give you better skin because it's creamy on your face, but they're literally reversing age i think i so need this <laughs> <laughs> i just need to nap more i think i feel younger oh my god yeah a nap would be great so that's very good for you ask nasa so right uh you know i mean the aging there's so much we could talk about futurism right you know we're we're looking at a future not we're looking at a future within our lifetimes where people are biologically immortal and they're not just you know old wizened figures sitting on a sofa you will be able to dial in your biological age. And people are saying probably you'll choose 25 because that's the end of adolescence. You're fully mature as a human being, but you could be 400 years old or more. In fact, they're saying the first person who will live to a thousand years has already been born. No way. What? Are you kidding me? Yep. So my, my 10 year old has a shot of living for ever. Oh my God. Because you don't I'm need to die. She's going to get to live forever. No, you're crazy. young enough. You are in that picture. We don't need to extend lifespan indefinitely within the next 50 years, say. We only need to extend it by about 20 years. Okay, so here's a big question. If this technology is being developed, I'm 50 now. Let's say in 35 years, I'm still around at 85. Am I going to be able to get back to 25? Because I'd be happy yes. to get back to 50 at that point. Yes. Wow. You're going to be Rob Button. Oh, my God. Benjamin Rob Button. Rob <laughs> Broccoli Rob will be around forever. Oh, think I of the fun we'll have. Oh no, I'm stuck with you forever. You, you came up with a really, you came up with a really interesting point, which is about identity theft. Yeah, right. And, uh, and of course, you know, who's going to have an identity? We, at that we point? recently learned how to erase memories. That's a thing that, 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 that we found a clumsy but, but way of, of locating a memory in the brain and scrubbing it out. It's terrifying. We're looking uh -oh. at. Um, you know, what does it mean to be human? This is what Ray Kurzweil writes about. You know, the singularity, as far as Ray Kurzweil is concerned, is where our consciousness is merged with the machine. Now, we don't really know what consciousness is, so it's difficult for us to do that. And there's some interesting recent evidence that suggests that it might be, um, let's say, a lot of data points around the brain. So we've got some issues to deal with, but we don't actually know what it means to be. We don't know what it means to exist. 
Uh, we've seen with uh, quantum entanglement that particles that are at a distance to one another seem to be able to uh, influence one another. And in fact, one of the four films I'm working on at the moment is a documentary uh, called Mind to Mind. It's a documentary about telepathy led by a Park Avenue psychiatrist who experienced it with a client, asked all her friends. They all said, yeah, we've experienced it. We won't talk about it because we'll lose our jobs. And this is Anna Yusim. She's a phenomenal uh, Park Avenue psychiatrist in New York. She's just like, nope, I'm going to research it. She's a medical doctor, multiple peer-reviewed papers published. She's a legit, respectable uh, psychiatrist. And so we've been doing a lot of research. We have 75 hours of interviews now with physicists, psychologists, um, healers, psychics, you name it, uh, ex-NASA scientists. And you, we've discovered an experiment. Now, I haven't, I just want to say now as a, as a footnote, I haven't personally investigated this. This is what I was told by someone who I had no reason to distrust, but that's as far as the, legitim the legitimacy of this goes. So it's not very legit. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very, it's quasi -legit. very, very respectable scientists right. who had no reason to lie, right? Right. You, there's an experiment where you get two people who feel close, twins, lovers, whatever. One person goes in a, in a dark room and the other person goes in a room where they're in a, oh, what's it called? They're in a sensorily deprived state. Yeah. Uh, there's a word sensory for it. De sensory sensory depri depri deprivation, deprivation tank, yeah. yeah. So they're, you know, furry gloves, uh, golf balls, uh, not golf balls, that'd be horrible, uh, ping pong balls over the eyes, white noise in the ears, that sort of stuff. Right. Both of these people have their brains wired up to a scanner that's checking, you know, plot graph. You randomly, apparently they've tested this again and again, you randomly shine bright lights in the face of the first person, whether they're conscious of it or not, the visual cortex of the second person responds. Seriously. That's whacked. How does that work? I need a third Here's another one that's going to blow your yeah, mind. I, 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 so people are interested in time, right? So they've done this test again and again and again. I have to go slowly through this because it's a bit mind-bending. You get two It gets worse? <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> You get two it's groups of bent. people and you give them a test. And, and, you know, the test is things like, what's the capital of this city? How do you do this thing? Whatever. You get the test results and you lock them in a safe. So no one gets to read them or see them. One week after the test, you flip a coin and pick one of the two groups. Whichever group is chosen, you teach them the answers so well that they get 100%. You give them the test again and they get 100%. Then you open the test, you open the safe. You take out the results from a week ago. The group that you trained always does better. That, that makes no sense. Unless time moves in two directions. Oh, now that you just blew your mind. Blew my mind. It's like there's no, there's no way that can, that can happen. All right, I have a couple, couple questions here yeah. as we wrap up. Oh, and I want to tell you the voting have, thing as well because it's awesome. But go have you written a Bond script? Yeah, nine minutes. And it could easily be a No, feature. no, I'm just going to say, because so much of what you're talking about here, think about a lot of the, um, a lot of these technologies and, and medical advances being written into a Bond script, you know, both on the villain side and, and oh, yeah. on, on the yeah. heroic Bond side. Yeah. There, there's a cool movie in there. Oh, my God. The villain I mean, with the turkey baster. <laughs> <laughs> well, They're right. like Goldfinger. <laughs> I can hear the music now. Turkey right. baster. <laughs> He can make he's the man. He can regenerate his gold skin. <laughs> oh my! We need to work on the lyrics. Crazy. Um, you know, you see uh, Terminator, right? Yeah. And in Terminator, the robots shoot like stormtroopers. They 
They just can't shoot. That's not how it would be if robots had guns. And we know this because we've given robots guns. They can shoot at least... They can. There was a a Russian robot was on a video the other day shooting, and they built a humanoid robot with a gun in each hand. It fired something like once every second, both guns at the same time, and perfectly hit the target. Or several targets. It was actually retargeting. If the robots ever rise up against us... We're done. We're hosed. Done. But we have to remember that they have no reason to. We're always thinking from this monkey perspective, you know, fear of scarcity, fear of rejection, uh, fear of running out of food, all that kind of stuff. Social dominance and hierarchies. The AI won't even identify with a body. Think about how much, how many of our priorities are rooted in the fact that we identify with our body. If you take away... Everything. Not entirely everything. A lot. I mean... It's our vehicle. A lot. It gets right. us through space. The, it gets us yeah. from here to there. It's, it's but here's the thing. We don't think of it as our vehicle. We think of it as us. Right. And AI, which in many ways is unhelpful. If you look at Zen philosophy, if you, you, know, if you look at in the Far East, meditation, um, or even in you know, Tai Chi. I teach Tai Chi Chuan, which is the fighting form of Tai Chi. It's about seeing yourself as an energetic being in a vehicle. Or actually, I love this quote that uh, I can never remember who said it first. Perhaps we're not a physical being having a spiritual experience. Perhaps instead we are a spiritual being having a physical experience. If we have a soul, which we don't know, but if it exists or a spirit or a non-physical part of us, perhaps it's not the traditional idea of a soul inside the vessel of your body, which is the traditional idea. You know, you can sell your soul to the devil if you want because it's yours to give and receive. Perhaps the body is inside the soul. Perhaps it's completely the other way around. That's an interesting thought. We have no idea. And so the problem is the stuff that we don't realize we're presuming. Now, AI won't identify with a body. In fact, it may not identify with a single identity. There could be 50 merging data sets, having different experiences and taking in different data in different areas. So until we get a handle on how AI will perceive us, we don't know. Now, there's an interesting author in the UK, Ian M. Banks, his theory, he writes in his amazing sci-fi books, is that the AI will see us as uh, like we see a tiger in a zoo. We think the tiger's beautiful. As long as it's behind the glass, everything's great. So the AI will probably think, we're amazing. Isn't it amazing that this species emerged in time and space? Let's give it whatever it wants. Hmm. Because nothing that we can do could be a threat to it. So we'll be in a zoo that we don't even realize is a zoo. That was my brain. <laughs> that was it. That was the moment. There is a lot to talk about with you. I think we're going to have to yeah, have you back on another podcast oh, I would love at to. some point. Yeah. This oh, is, but I this is really interesting. Before we wind up, I yeah, want to tell yeah. you my, my solution to the global de- democratic issues. Yeah, let's hear it. You ready for this? Yeah. I call it the tribute system. Okay. And it works like this. And now I'm saying this on a microphone for the first time. I better watch yes. my back. <laughs> it's an exclusive. Here's the rules, the new rules. Mm-hmm. Politicians no longer make decisions. They elucidate arguments for us. They make decisions about security stuff, that sort of thing. But we vote on everything. You have to vote by law on everything. 
you vote using a smartphone, your computer, your laptop, go to the library, vote wherever. Yeah. And just for the record, you know, with, with technologies like blockchain coming online and, and some of the, um, uh, let's call them facsimile AI network security systems. They can be secure. They can be secure. If I can make a $100,000 banking transaction online, uh, you know, you should be able to vote using your thumbprint. I can't remember. I read a, I read a thing the other day. One of the major stock market investment companies made something like a stupid, like a $14 billion transaction on their smartphone. Really? So if you can do that, you can vote, right? Right. Here's the thing, though. A lot of people have no clue about politics. They don't know what they're doing or they're not interested. What are you going to do about having to vote? So we break it down into 12 categories of vote. Science, economics, the arts, education, whatever. Let's say you are an expert on education and I know nothing about it. I contribute my education votes to you. Hmm. My so vote you still allocate counts. your votes, yeah. My vote still counts. Uh, but now my vote is being cast by someone who actually knows what they're talking about. I can give all my votes to you or just one and I can withdraw it instantly. Anybody who gets, we'll have to come up with a number, let's say 10,000 tributes, has to announce their decision 24 hours in advance to give people that have donated their vote to them time to see what they're planning on voting for and hmm. removing the vote if they disagree with them. So the individual is 100% empowered, not just That's pretty good. to vote, but also to donate the vote to someone better qualified than Like Bill Nye, the science guy. He can have all my votes, basically. <laughs> That's kind of what I was thinking. Certainly for science, he's got them all. Now, there are some risks. As a friend pointed out, you know, what's to stop corporations saying, I'll give you $1,000 for all your votes? Yeah, bribery. So you just make that problem. very illegal. And there's so many people. You're going to get, you're going to, it's a big data solution to a problem, right? You're going to get outliers. You're going to get problems. You're going to get people trying to stir up particular viewpoints. But that's kind of the point of democracy, that the people get to vote. Uh, there's a beautiful uh, John Oliver. I'm a big fan of John Oliver. Yeah. And there's a, he did a beautiful thing about democracy where he, was, he gets all these people on stage representing the crazies. And he was saying the whole point is that everybody gets to vote. But the definition of a democracy, in my understanding, is that it's an informed public voting freely. And the moment, we don't really have that. No, we don't. And the media doesn't help. And the saddest thing about the way our mass media works is that making people panic makes more money for news agencies. They learned that during the Second World War, actually. So they're not giving us these terrifying headlines or conflicting information in order to achieve a political, socio-political agenda. They're just doing it to make money. Yeah, it's, it's money-driven. Yep. And they don't care. Selling actually. clicks. They got to sell clicks. They got to sell clicks. So that's my solution. That's we work it through good. now. We can't just transition to it. So we start off by giving it for free to universities who want to vote on the student. You know, where's the student party going to be? good idea. Test it out where you've got a few thousand people, where the stakes are pretty low. You rule that, work it all out, do some studies. And then piece by piece, we start moving in that direction. My theory is this, and, and this is my, my deepest interest in futurism and in socioeconomic reform and development and all of that is that life really follows a series of very, very simple principles. Those principles are so simple, we often miss them altogether. But here's one. If you begin to obstruct, to dominate, to um, lock away information and become difficult to work with, people don't work harder to work with you. They just go around you. If you're a rock in the middle of a river, 
The river just flows around the rock. It doesn't try to push the river downstream. And so I think the danger we have with the current political model is it, it risks becoming irrelevant. And if you look at some of the, uh, the, the cross-geography, cross-border, cross-culture technologies that are allowing, look at Kickstarter. You know, Kickstarter doesn't care which country you're in right. or which currency you use. If you want to help these people do this thing, go for it. So what we're seeing now is quite substantial resources being managed without a manager. They're being managed by, you know, one person who sets up a crowdfunding campaign. There was a beautiful example of, uh, you know, the, um, what's it, the animals of New York? Is it people of New York? People of New York. People of New York. They went to uh, overseas and they met a guy whose tractor had just broken down and been destroyed. And in the, he was saying that in the comments, a crowdfunding campaign raised enough money to buy him a new tractor. It's weird. Kickstarter has become more democratic than our democracy. Here's the thing. Right? All it takes is for someone to come up with a way of allowing us to make decisions about things that doesn't require the current political process, which, just for the record, is rooted in a time where if I wanted to write to you, I had to get parchment and a feather dipped right. in ink and hand it to somebody with a horse who would ride for three days <laughs> and give it to you and then repeat, rinse and repeat. We need a political system that is in the present. And we do need one. And if we don't get one, my fear is that we will simply sidestep it. And if we're lucky, we'll sidestep it in a way that's constructive and positive. If we're unlucky, it can be that, dangerous. that process can be corrupted by people who don't care. Right. So on that happy note, <laughs> where do you want where do you want people to go learn about you? Because there's a lot to learn about. Um, so if you go to uh, jamesbond.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my name is Maxim Jago. It's a weird name. W, uh, w, uh, M-A-X-I-M-J-A-G-O, maximjago.com. I have a Wikipedia page now. It's awesome. Yeah, congratulations. It makes me look like I know anything. <laughs> and uh, I'm very, very easy to find if you Google me. And uh, right now, actually, what I'm looking for is uh, opportunities to speak about this stuff. So if people are, want to have someone yabber on about how... By the way... Opportunities and $52 million. Don't and, forget. <laughs> well, more like 60. <laughs> There's... Uh, just to sum up this futurism thing, you know, I'm an optimistic realist. So realist primarily, but I, I believe that good things happen. We've had a history of things nearly being awful and not quite getting there. Mm -hmm. I believe in human nature. I believe in the goodness of people. Uh, Noam Chomsky was saying that, yes, competition is fundamental to human nature, but even more fundamental to human nature is cooperation. And we live in a culture, both in Britain and, and America, where our competitiveness is fomented, it's uh, enhanced, it's encouraged, it's emphasized. Even at school, mm -hmm. doing an egg and spoon race, you're competing. Yeah. You're doing the sack jumping race thing. Right. It's all about who won the award. And what that denies is our most, is our deepest intrinsic nature, which is most satisfied by cooperation. And working together with one another is so fundamental to us, we almost don't see it. We do it all the time. Every time you open a door for someone, that's your cooperative nature kicking in. And so what I see is a future where our technology, look at, I mean, we didn't even touch on the inevitable, and I'm using the word inevitable, free economy that we'll get to via universal basic income. Um, that's a bold thing to say mm -hmm. it's inevitable, but seriously, it has to be, or we're buggered. <laughs> uh, 
Um, do you say that word here? Yes. Yeah. We're, no, we're not well, in good no, shape. No, we listen to Brits to say that word here, but we don't really use it. Okay. Let's put it that way. We are moving towards what could be a utopia, a new golden age, a new renaissance in the human experience. We are going there. It is happening, not tomorrow, but today. And we need to see that it's happening because the way we feel about ourselves shapes who we become. And all uh, same psychologist friend of mine used to say, you are not what you think you are. You are what you think. Whatever you invest your time and focus on, you become. You think you live in a violent world, you keep experiencing violence, you become a violent person. You think you live in a loving world where everyone is kind, guess what? You keep meeting lovely people. Your thoughts become your actions, right? Your thoughts become your actions and literally your reality. Mm -hmm. So we need to celebrate how awesome life is and how lucky we are to be here and how wonderful things already are in order to have the hope and the optimism to put the negatives behind us. Same psychologist used to say that actually people spend too much time focusing on their flaws, trying to fix them. But because you're thinking about them, you empower them. They become dominant in your thinking and they become dominant in your life. And your overall happiness is affected. It turns out that if you focus on the things that you love and are proud of about yourself, if you focus on the things that make you feel good about yourself, you starve those negative things. They lose their power and influence over you. And before you know it, you're just not that affected by them now. If I were to change one thing in the world today, just one thing, it would be to remove judgment. Not your capacity to judge, you know, is that a cat or a dog? Not that use of the word right. judgment, but the value judgments. Right. Just, it serves no purpose. Right. If I'm your mentor, if I'm your teacher, if I'm someone that you report to, if I'm your boss, then value judging the quality of your work has a place. But if you're showing me the clothes you're wearing or the language you use or the color of your skin, for goodness sake, which just for the record is, is melanin, just imagine if we changed it, this one thing, and I'm sorry if this isn't, uh, I, I think this is politically correct. I come from a very permissive society. Right. Imagine if we stopped saying black and white, which just for the record is nonsense because nobody's black or white. What if we said perfectly brown, and peachy cream, which is kind of, <laughs> but by law, imagine if the news, news came up and said, today a perfectly brown man was <laughs> captured by the police, the, the peachy cream police officer. <laughs> the language you use, the frame of reference, yeah. love is more important than fear. And if we remember that, we unlock so much that we keep protected and hidden away when we focus on the paradigm of fear. And that's why we need to fix this news thing. That's why there's so much incredible stuff happening today that we should be punching the air and celebrating because it's all leading us towards an era where we are free to be self-aware, to grow, to discover our potential and seek the fulfillment of that potential instead of just struggling. Right. And it's coming. That's so good. let's be optimistic. That's good. That's the high note. That's where we That's need to end. Let's, let's end on the high note <laughs> and being optimistic. Yeah. It's about love. Thank Always. you so much. This has been an awesome conversation. Yeah, this, is, this has really been amazing. We really appreciate it. I'm going to do two things different on this outro. One, I'm going to use telepathy to let you know what our website is. <laughs> and download this episode. Awesome. And two, Always. instead of saying bye, I'm just going to do a slow clap. <laughs> 
We're just clapping it. You melted my face off three times. Now, that was really fun. You're really, welcome. You're yeah. really fun and really informative. So we, we appreciate you Thank taking you. the time to talk with us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that was insightful. I hope you were paying attention and actually learned something for once. This podcast is brought to you by Sakonic, where being a creative comes from removing the guesswork. Understanding light is a tricky business. That's why Sakonic light meters are the perfect solution for any photographer wanting to get more from their studio lights. Light meters are more than just a measurement tool. They are a gateway to understanding how to shape light and to use it to create beautiful images consistently. Head to Sakonic.com to see how a light meter can help you stop all the guesswork.